you will go ahead and look at your outline real quick, if you don't have an outline there, through the door on the right-hand side. And the reason I point that out is, is if you look at the top of the outline, you will see that it is listed as today, May 16th. Today is not the 16th, but this is actually the very reason we have outlines. Uh, I simply sometimes do make mistakes. In this case, it is the date. Uh, but we provide all the scripture for everything that we do so that you can go back and verify that I do not make a mistake. I do know that I will probably add a few this morning as I, as I go, just from memory. And we're going to look at the topic, uh, what difference does it make? And you may wonder exactly how it was I began to think about this and began to work on this sermon. And I was actually in my car this week as I was driving to work. I don't know how many of you sing along with songs. And there was a song by Sheryl Crow. Some of you will know it as I give a couple of the lyrics. Part of the lyrics it says, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. But then I began to think a little bit about that. The idea really in what she's saying in that song is, is it really doesn't make a difference. Uh, and that certainly has become the primary thought process for many people regarding a number of things in our lives today. And it has led to a number of different types of issue. Again, that idea of if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad has led to things like, like adultery and fornication and, and drug and alcohol abuse and people being involved in things like abortions and theft and, and a number of other things that are sins according to the Scriptures. But it's not just that thought process with things regarding the world. We also find the, that very same thought process carrying off into when many people begin to discuss or what they think about religion. Let me give you just a couple of the mindsets here that people have. There's a very common mindset today that it doesn't really matter... Um, what is worshipped or who is worshipped as long as it's a higher power and really that you're doing it in some type of sincerity. There is a very common mindset that it doesn't really matter what type of church you attend. It could be a uh, denominational group such as a Baptist or Pentecostal or Catholic or Church of Christ. Uh, could even be some type of a community church. There's a very common mindset that it doesn't really matter what type of hierarchy or church leadership is found within the religious group that you affiliate with. It could be a group that has things like popes and archbishops and priests, or it could be a group that has a one-man pastor system, or it could be a group that has men or women as pastors. It doesn't really make a difference uh, who and how you worship as long as, again, you are sincere. And that's a number of the mindsets you find. I think it sounds very similar to as I was listening to that song, and I never really thought about the words, even though I'd heard the song probably hundreds of times. <clears throat> the Bible teaches us that there is a difference between truth and error. There is a difference between right and wrong, and it, and it actually does make a difference. And we're going to look at a number of areas today where it does make a difference and who it made a difference to. And I want you to go ahead and start turning over to Galatians 2.5. I'll try to give you guys a warning and then we'll, uh, we'll actually look at two passages, a couple of passages here out of Galatians. It's interesting as you begin to think about this idea of does it or does it not make a difference, we realize it does make a difference. And because of that, we know that Paul had accepted nothing other than the true unaltered gospel. Everything had to be in alignment with the scriptures. As a matter of fact, in Galatians 1.8, and I'm going to actually go to Galatians 2.5, but in Galatians 1.8, Paul says, if there's somebody out teaching another gospel, they need to be accursed. The reason Paul would say that was is because it actually made a difference. Now, in Galatians 2, we find them talking about the Judaizers, and I want you to notice what is said here, Galatians 2.5. 
He says, to whom we gave place by subjection. No, not for an hour. Well, why is that, Paul? Why wouldn't you tolerate them teaching something that didn't line up with Scripture? He says that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. He wanted those people to continue to follow the faith, the truth of the gospel. And so he, it mattered to him. He had to stand against those things that were not in alignment with the Scriptures. And Paul did that for a reason, actually for a number of reasons. But one of those is, as Paul begins to show us that false belief or an incorrect belief actually uh, alters or affects the way that we walk. So I'm going to go on over to Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. And guys, we know this is true. We know that what you believe drives everything that you, that you think and do. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. Let's notice an example of here where somebody's belief is affecting what they're doing. It says, But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. Let me pause for a second. So why is it that Paul feels the need to stand against Peter? And what did he do to be blamed for? Let's notice in verse 12. For before that, certain came from James, and he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. Let me pause again and say, what's going on here? So Peter, who was a Jew who's become a Christian... He's sitting and he's eating with these Gentiles until this group comes from James. And then all of a sudden he begins to worry about what these Jews are going to think about him sitting with the Gentiles. And so he separates himself from the Gentiles and he comes back to eat with the Jews. Now, the Jews who'd become Christians. Now notice in verse 13, this didn't just affect him. It says, And the other Jews disassembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. Now, if you want to know what that word dissimulation is, it's hypocrisy. You may be saying, well, how is, how is Peter being a hypocrite because he was eating with the Gentiles, but now he moved over with the Jews? Well, we actually learn in verse 14 why he's being a hypocrite. It says, but when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel. All right, so what he's doing is, is not in alignment with the Scriptures. I said unto Peter before them all, if thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of the Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? All right, he's being prejudicial here to the Gentiles uh, in relation to the Jews. But here's the thing, he didn't even live as a Jew anymore. And, and he didn't follow their, their religious doctrine. Right? It made a difference enough to Paul, or to, to Paul to have to address this with Peter. Okay? And Paul knew that doctrine mattered, and the reason he knew that was because our doctrine is inspired and it is authoritative. I think that's a primary problem. I'm going to actually go over to Galatians 1, verse 11 and 12 here. But that's a primary problem in the religious world. The majority of people do not look at our New Testament Scripture and believe that this is literally inspired, that it is God-breathed, as it's mentioned in the Scriptures. And so because of that, they don't really understand that it is oftentimes authoritative. Paul knew this. Notice Galatians 1.11. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel, again that word good news or euangelion in the Greek, which was preached of me is not after man. So what's he saying? I didn't, I didn't get this from some, some man, right? He says, for I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it. So nobody gave him a doctrine to teach. He says, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our New Testament teaching is inspired it is authoritative, and therefore it is binding. Now, we'll talk a little bit about that. 
But getting an understanding of that also lets us understand why James would say that there are two different types of religion. There is what's called pure and undefiled, and then there is vain. You'll find this in James 1, 26 and 27. If any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Okay, so there is such thing as vain religion. He goes on. Pure religion and undefiled, that's the other type of religion, before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. That last part of the phrase there where it says unspotted from the world, that's the primary part. Anything the Scriptures have told us to do to keep ourselves pure and undefiled, that's what keeps us unspotted from the world. So now here's the questions we've got to ask ourselves before I really get into just looking at a few of these things that people don't think matters. Is your religion, is it pure and undefiled, or is it vain? And if you're here and you're not sure, or if you're watching this online, the best way to know the answer to this question or these questions is to go back and to allow the Bible to answer. So I'm going to look at some of the big things that people do not think matter. Some of this is going to be review for you, but it certainly would be beneficial for those who might be watching this who don't know. Let's start off by asking ourselves this question. Does it even really matter how one is saved? Most of us have discussions with people quite often who, who will say, no, it, it doesn't really matter. I mean, can I believe only? There are some that think that they can. Is any baptism acceptable? Some are fine with sprinkling. Some are okay with pouring. Uh, some think it has to be immersion. Or do I even have to be immersed in water for a very specific reason and with correct understanding? Now, the answer for most people uh, or at least what they've been taught for the majority of these questions that we're looking at is it doesn't really make a difference. Actually, go back to what Cheryl Crow said. If it, if, it makes you, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. And that's really the common mindset. I'm going to go over to Acts chapter 4, verse 12, because the first thing we're going to notice when we say does it, does it make a difference how one is saved is, is it, makes a, it makes a difference in whose, whose name we're even saved. Guys, there are people who think they can be saved in a number of manners, by a number of different higher powers, by different things. Listen to Acts 4.12. This is interesting if you guys really think about this verse. Neither is there salvation in any other. Now you're going to notice there's a uh, punctuation mark there. And you may be saying, in any, in any other what? Well, no, just read it exactly like it is. Neither is there salvation in any other. Whether you want to be saved as a Buddhist, whether you want to be saved as uh, under the Islamic faith, whether you, whether you want to be saved under some erroneous doctrine taught by a, a different group out there, uh, or as an atheist, he starts off by making it very plain. Neither is there salvation in any other. Now, if you can't get that, he's going to make it even more clear for us. For there is none other name under heaven given among men, notice this, whereby we must be saved. Let's help you out there. If there's a group somewhere under heaven here on this earth we're talking about that you're trying to figure out how to be saved by or think you can be saved by them, what are these groups? Well, these are, these are religious affiliations. There's no other group under, uh, under heaven given among men. Well, what groups is he talking about? Well, very simply put, religious groups by which you think you can be saved started by men. This would describe any denominational group out there. Every denominational group is based on teachings of men, and guess where their names come from? The same men. You don't find that about the church we find described in the Bible. That was actually named 
by the Lord Himself, we follow and wear His name. But there is no other group out there which one can be saved other than His name. That's why we wear the name Christians, and we are members of the churches of Christ, Romans 16, 16. It's called some other things, but that's primarily the name that we use. It's a scriptural name. And so it does make a difference whose name in which we are saved. It made a difference to Paul, as a matter of fact, when you begin to talk about how one is saved. We oftentimes call this the plan of salvation or the method of salvation. This made a difference to Paul. Go on over to Acts chapter 15. We're going to look at verses 1 through 2, and then we're going to move down to verses 7 through 11. And the reason we're going to do this is there were people even during the time of Paul who were trying to change the requirements for salvation. We've got that going on today. So let's look at a biblical example. Acts 15, 1 through 2. And certain men which, were, which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. Let me pause for a second. So you've got Judaizers down here who are now adding to the requirements, at least in their opinion, of what one must do to be saved. Now notice verse 2. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, you guys ever notice people have heated arguments? We ever had a heated, I wouldn't say angry argument in here, but Larry can get a little heated back here sometimes when we talk, and sometimes we, we get a little boisterous when we talk. These guys are having a very boisterous conversation about what's required for salvation. Now notice, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem and under the apostles and elders about this question. So they're going back and forth, disputing over what's necessary for salvation. He says, you know what you need to do? We need to go up to Jerusalem where the, uh, the church and the apostles are. We need to get this figured out. Acts 15, 7 through 11. Peter's going to solve this issue. It says, and when there had been much disputing, still going on, Peter rose up and he said unto them, men and brethren, Ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us, that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Spirit, even as He did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Let me pause before I read, 10, read verse 10. Here you have him talking about purifying our hearts by faith. A lot of people go here and they think this means faith only. First, let me say this. This doesn't say faith only. He purified their hearts by faith. That actually, that word by can be through faith. But here, guys, this account's talking about Cornelius. And I can assure you this is not faith only because if you actually go, this isn't in your notes, if you go to Acts 10, verse 48, we find that the household there of Cornelius, after they believed, they were immersed by the requirements that were required for them as part of the faith. Right? So this is not faith only. Let me go on, verse 10. Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Here's an interesting part. But we believe that through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. What was he saying? It's interesting that under the Old Testament, you were righteous and saved under totally different requirements than you are under the New Testament as a Christian. And he's making this very clear here. Uh, that the method of salvation didn't, it didn't include those things under the Old Testament. But he says this, just as those people were saved, we believe we also are going to be saved. And they would. They were just under a different dispensation. All right? But there were people out who were trying to change the, the way that people would be saved. We have that going on today. 
Well, let's actually look at God's method or plan or uh, how He desires and mandates people to be saved. Go on over to Acts chapter 2. Again, a passage you're very familiar with. And we could look at a number of verses, but I, uh, this should be sufficient to look at this passage. Acts 2, verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Now, he's just preached the gospel to them. And they realize they've killed, they've killed the uh, prophesied Messiah. Verse 38. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all them that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. That's from uh, Joel uh, chapter 2, if you guys are taking notes. He goes on, verse 40. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Let me pause for a second. Guys, do you see that right there being personal choice in a matter of salvation? He's telling them, save yourself. You hear a lot of people teach a number of things and say you don't have a choice. You clearly do. Verse 41, Then they that gladly received His word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and prayers. Now I'm going to touch on that here in a little bit. But here's the point. There is a method of salvation. Peter here, standing on the day of Pentecost, he goes back to the Old Testament. He uses Old Testament Scripture to teach them that Jesus Christ was the prophesied Messiah. They realized that they had just taken part in the killing of this prophesied Messiah who came to establish His kingdom, His church, and then they believed it. They believed what was being taught to them. They were told to repent and to be baptized, and they did. And when they did that, they were added to the church, simply which came into existence there in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. This is the first time we read about the church being established after the first gospel sermon. And you have to ask yourself, does it make a difference? Well, it makes a difference. Peter thought it made a difference. We find nonstop throughout the New Testament that they were standing for the doctrine and how it was that one would be saved. Ask yourself this, does it make a difference if you even understand what it is that you're, you're supposed to believe or what it is that you're even being added to? We just talked about being added to the church. Uh, the Bible shows us very clear. I'm going to go over to Acts 19. Most of you are familiar with this. The Bible makes it very clear to us that an incorrect understanding uh, coupled with either correct actions or incorrect actions doesn't result in salvation. Now we learn this very simply in Acts 19, 1 through 5. It says, And it came to pass that while Paulus was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus, and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Spirit. Now certainly that's going to cause some concern for Paul. Here I've got Christians, they don't know anything about the Holy Spirit, so I'm wondering, what, what have these guys even been taught? He said unto them, Unto what then were you baptized? That's part of the plan of salvation. You don't find a conversion account without it. And they said, Unto John's baptism. They're talking about John the Immerser, who died before the kingdom ever came into existence. And then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which, which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now some would say here they're rebaptized. They're re well, what happened was, is they were taught incorrect, they got immersed, but the immersion wasn't scriptural. He realizes they had no idea what they were, 
what they were uh, being immersed for. They couldn't have had a full understanding of what they would have been added to, and so he teaches them correctly, and then they are scripturally immersed with understanding. I bring that up because there are people today, when you ask them if they're baptized, they'll say, I was sprinkled, I was poured. Some say, I didn't get baptized at all because it's, it's not required, we're saved by faith. And here's the thing, you can't, you can't understand incorrectly and then think that that at any point will result in salvation because our beliefs drive everything regarding our actions. Even with all of our inspired conversion accounts, and we go to them quite often, the, and, and even with all of the Bible teaching that we have, uh, it doesn't seem to make a whole lot of difference to the majority of people regarding a number of things. They do whatever they want. They teach whatever they want. And again, let's focus a little bit more on where we just left off. There are many people today who will say that, yeah, you can be saved and, and you, don't need to be, you don't need to be baptized. I'm going to go over to Acts 22:16. Most of you are familiar with this. And why don't you notice what is told to Saul here? Acts 22:16. And now, why tarriest thou, arise and be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. People love to go here and talk about just calling on the name of the Lord. I could spend a whole a lot of time talking about that. You actually find that in Acts chapter 2, calling on the name of the Lord. Uh, Joel even refers to that. But we're going to focus simply on, the, on this. talks about washing away his sins. Guys, that's a reference back to the reason for baptism in Acts 2.38, which tells us that we are baptized for the remission of sins. And if you go over to 1 Peter 3.21, you guys, many of you familiar with that, where it says this, the like figure, that word there actually is antitypon. I didn't look it up, but it's uh, the antitype. Whereunto even baptism, notice this, doth also now save us. Let me pause for a minute. Whether, whether you agree with it or not, when the Bible says something is part of what saves us, it's definitely required for salvation. You have to do it, right? Let's go on. Even baptism doth also now save us. Notice this, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. It's not a bath, right? but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism is for the remission of sins. It literally cleanses the soul. That's what we find here. When it does, we're added to the church. Now, let's move from baptism to the church because once you've obeyed the gospel and you're added to the church, you then have people say, well, you can be saved apart from the church or you can be saved in any church. I'm going to go over to Ephesians 5.23. Can you really be saved in any church? I mean, does it, does it matter? Does it make a difference? Ephesians 5.23, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. That's singular. And he is the Savior of the body. There's one church. There is one body. Uh, it's not in your notes, but go on over to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4. Again, you'll see there is one body. The one body is the church. That church is in alignment with the doctrine. Again, go back to Ephesians 4.4. There's one faith. Christ is the head. And so we do everything according to the head's authority or through his name. I'm going to go over to Colossians 3.17. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's talking about in his authority. You can't just say, hey, I'm doing this in the name of Jesus. It means according to his authority. Giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Yeah, it makes a difference what I understand. It makes a difference what I what I believe. And as I begin to look at the conversion accounts, it makes a difference whether I even fully comprehend or understand what the church is that I would even be added to if I was obeying the gospel. Does it make a difference? It certainly does. 
With that being said, then, does it make a difference how we worship God? Most of us know people that go to different religious types of groups. They worship in a number of different ways. Some don't even go to any type of religious group. They maybe are worshiping out of their house or simply saying, you know, I, I just do my devotions throughout the week or whatever. Here's the thing. We can't merely worship a higher power without understanding. Most of you are familiar with John 4.24. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, this isn't in your notes, but write down John 17.17 17 because his word is truth. A lot of people will say, well, I believe this is truth, or I believe that's truth. We get truth from the Word. Now, Jesus, in Matthew 15, 9, and then I'm going to go to Matthew 15, 13, He says this, But in vain they do worship Me, notice this, teaching for doctrine the commandments of men. So these are things that are contrary to His Word, which is truth. Does it matter? It does matter, because if you slide on down to Matthew 15, 13, notice what we find is going to happen for anybody who is teaching things contrary to His Word. But He answered and He said, Every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Jesus says it makes a difference. Now, it makes a difference when we begin to talk about what it is that we offer in worship. We're going to focus a little bit on our worship here this morning. I know i got a number of topics we're looking at here. It does make a difference how and what we offer in worship. Going over to Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 10. I'm going to give you a couple seconds to get over there because we don't read a lot from Leviticus. You know, it's funny I mentioned I've never preached a full lesson out of Leviticus. But most of you are familiar with this passage and this account. And it's interesting in the Old Testament, very similar to what we find in the New Testament, uh, the Jews in the Old Testament, they were told exactly how it was that they were to worship, the same as we have. Uh, they had a different system because they lived there under different requirements. But notice in Leviticus chapter 10, we're going to look at the account here with Nadab and Abihu. They are priests who are offering worship. It says, And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, notice this, which he commanded them not. Let me pause for a second. How many of you guys have ever heard someone say, you know, the Bible doesn't say I can't do that? <laughs> well, it doesn't really matter because uh, we follow the commands of the Lord. Uh, we don't need to go through and, and look through our scriptures to see what we can try to get away with. He makes it very clear what we're supposed to do. Here he had already told them what to do, how they were to offer fire. They decided to offer strange fire in a way that he had commanded them not. Notice verse 2. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. We could spend a lot of time on this, but the point is simply this. God desires our worship, but He accepts only that worship which has been commanded. All right? It is very simple for us to understand what's required of us. The Bible does command us to do certain things and not do other things. But Nadab and Abihu took it upon themselves to do something above and beyond what was commanded. And that's kind of what we often hear people say today. Well, the Bible doesn't really say I can't. And I'm, I'm doing that portion, but maybe I've modified it slightly. So let's talk a little bit about why we do what we do. Many people will tell you the Churches of Christ are a very unique organization. I wouldn't use those words. I would say we are a scriptural uh, religious body because of the way we do things. But many people describe us as being unique because of why and what we do. So let's notice why and what we do for our acts of worship. 
We notice that singing is authorized for worship. I'm going to go over to Ephesians 5.19. I didn't put it in your notes. Go ahead and write down Colossians 3.16 if you want another support verse. And we could look at a number of others, but this one should be sufficient. Why do we only sing a cappella? The word a cappella meaning in the manner of the early church. That's the only way you find the church singing. Um, you didn't find instruments being added until much later. The Catholic Church admits they did it. And you didn't even find it primarily taking place in any of the other religious bodies really until... Maybe about the 1860s, you really start seeing coming in, and we actually had a division within the church over the matter. Notice Ephesians 5.19, Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, notice this, and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Now, many people are not familiar with that phrase, but that phrase, making melody, that word is solo. It means to pluck or to, to stroke. Uh, and a lot of people will even go to this word and say, well, you've got a stroking here. This gives permission for the instrument. Well... You guys are going to notice the only instrument is the actual heart. Go back and read it again with the correct word in there. Singing and stroking your heart to the Lord. While the lips sing, the instrument is the heart. And the heart, we're talking about the Bible mind, it has to join into the melody. We're literally thinking about the words that we're singing as part of our worship, and we're doing such so that we can offer true, sincere worship to God. But it's interesting to me... And I may be wrong, but I don't think so. seems to me that there's too much singing going on within the churches of Christ that are only lips only. What I mean is, is how many of you guys have ever, and I'll be honest, I'm sure, it's happened to, I'm sure it's happened to everyone. I know it's happened to me. How many of you guys have ever let your mind wander away and you're really not concentrating on what it is you should be concentrating on? The lips are singing. You're offering the praise, but the, the heart, the Bible mind's not really involved. I think oftentimes we find in too many congregations the lips are offering praise, but the heart's not involved. Matthew 15, 8, Jesus said, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips. Notice this, but their heart is far from me. Does it matter? Does it make a difference? A lot of people will say, well, talking about this matter here, singing, you know, it doesn't really make a difference. The Bible does teach that we should sing, and we do sing. We just add the instrument. And then you'll hear, and the Bible doesn't say that we can't. Let me point this out before we go over to Revelation chapter 22. The Bible doesn't say that you can. And it's interesting in Revelation, and what I'm going to read here, you will find the same thing mentioned three times in our scriptures. You'll find it twice in the Old Testament, once in the New Testament. I'm going to read from the New Testament because we're under New Testament authority. But notice in Revelation chapter 22, verse 18 and 19, it says, For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of that holy city and from the things which are written in this book. Three times we're told, do not add to the Scriptures, do not take away from the Scriptures, why wasn't somebody there to help out Nadab and Abihu when they thought, you know what, we could probably do this just a little bit different. We could, we could probably offer strange fire this way. Guys, we realize very clearly that we are to worship the way we've been commanded. And singing is part of it. We know that prayer is authorized for worship. Acts 2.42 is what John read when we first got here earlier, uh, right before the sermon. We realized that the the early church, when first established right there in Jerusalem, they did partake in prayer as one of the acts. You see the rest of the acts of worship there also. 
Uh, we could go over to First Thessalonians. That's not in your notes. You could go over to First Thessalonians five seventeen. We are told to pray uh, without ceasing, always being in the mindset to pray. But I am going to read from First Timothy chapter two. If you're following along in your outline, you'll see where I'm going. We learn quite a bit about our prayers, and I'm going to do this because I want to I want to uh, emphasize something that we see out in the religious world. First Timothy chapter two verse one. I exert therefore that. First of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority. He's going to tell why we do this in a second. That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all goodliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth. Now, we've already just briefly looked at a couple of verses. We know that prayer is part of what we do for worship. Uh, prayers consist of devotions, intercessions, individual petitions to God. But there are some groups that don't pray correctly or scripturally, or they don't pray maybe uh, at all, or they ask for things that are not according to Scripture. I'll go back to a little bit of my, my background. Uh, you have Catholics that pray. If you ask Catholics if they pray, they would tell you they do. Uh, they pray in a number of unscriptural manners, and they pray to a number of unscriptural things. They pray to Mary. They pray to... Uh, dead saints. They count beads on their rosaries while they do their Holy Marys. I remember counting through my beads. There's a number of things that they do. And so not only are they not praying, in, uh, praying to God in Christ's name, they've actually brought in paganistic rituals to carry along with them as they're doing their prayers. Does it make a difference? Absolutely it does. We're told how it is that we're to pray. We're told the manner of prayer. We're told who to pray to, and we're told whose name to pray through. We're also told very clearly about teaching and preaching being authorized for worship. I'll go over to Acts chapter 20, verse 7. Normally we use this passage for a couple of different items, usually for the, for the Lord's Supper also, but I'll use a different passage. But let's use this for teaching and preaching. Most of you are familiar with this, and I, I really can't imagine that somebody would have worship to God without teaching and preaching, but I'm very sure that it has happened. I'm sure there are people who have claimed to be worshiping, and there was no preaching whatsoever to take place. Acts 20, verse 7, And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, when did they come together to break bread? Well, it was on the first day of the week. How many days or how many weeks have a first day? Every one. Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. Let me point something out before I move on. It's interesting, Paul came here. He had to wait for them to assemble together so he could worship with them. A lot of people wouldn't do that today. They'd just say, it's Thursday. We can worship on Thursday. We could partake of the Lord's Supper on Thursday. We don't find that. But we do find that when they came together on the first day of the week, we did have preaching and teaching taking place in the assembling. Very simple. They gathered together on the first day of the week as the local body, and they assembled together. I uh, didn't put it in your notes. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty would be one of the number of passages there through 1 Corinthians 11 about the body gathering. doesn't matter where we gather. This is just a building. We can gather outside or we can gather here, but we are to gather. With all that being said, guys, ask yourself, how in the world did the religious groups today get to the point they're at? Thinking of all the things taking place, we see stuff like drama skits and people playing movies and puppet shows and, and rock concerts. And I, I keep thinking about Nadab and Abihu who offered something strange to the Lord, which he commanded them not. And guys, many people think they can do whatever they want, however they want, but the Scriptures teach it makes a difference. 
Let's talk about the Lord's Supper here. I know I'm going to go a little long, but I'm, I'm getting close to being done. I'm going to go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as we talk about the Lord's Supper. Verse 23, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And after the same manner, he also took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Now, I didn't put it in the notes here, but you probably should go ahead and cite down Matthew uh, 28 verses 18 through 20, uh, where he says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the world. I probably should have put that down. I didn't even put it in my notes. He tells the apostles, Go out and to teach and to baptize and to teach them all the things that I already taught you, which goes back here to what Jesus told and then which Paul you see doing here in 1 Corinthians 11. He is teaching them about the Lord's Supper. Now you've got people today who say, well, we do the Lord's Supper, but we don't do it on the first day of the week. Does it even really matter? So they're not following the frequency. And you have some people who say, well, we do the Lord's Supper, but we maybe don't use the same elements as we find there. But does it even really matter whether it's unleavened bread and fruit of the vine? And, and certainly that's a valid question. Does it matter? Because anybody who would think that they could change any part of worship, kind of like Nadab and Abihu, even including here the Lord's Supper, doesn't have reverence for the Word of God. Notice 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily, if you look that word up, it actually is translated as without reverence. Anybody who could partake in any act of worship, including the Lord's Supper, without reverence will be accounted. They'll be guilty. He goes on, shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Does it matter? Looks to me like it does. How about the collection for the saints? We know that that is authorized. Uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, you guys ever notice it's interesting that every time we find Christians gathered together, it's very clear to us that it's the first time of the week. It's not Thursday, it's not Friday, it's not Saturday. There's just that one day authorized, right? Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him. Remember that phrase, that there be no gatherings when I come. Now, you start talking about the collection for the saints. I'm going to tell you the majority of religious groups out there, they're all about the collection. But here's what's interesting. They'll, they'll pass the hat anytime the doors are open. We find uh, it was a portion of the, of the service here where they would lay by on the first day of the week. Uh, so we're to do this every week. But here's what's interesting. Most places that want you to lay by in store, they don't do it by what we find here, God hath prosper, as God hath prospered us, or to give cheerfully, or any of the other requirements for our giving. What do they give? They want you to give your 10% tithe, right? Guys, you don't find that in the Scriptures. Are we supposed to give upon the first day? Absolutely. And some would say, well, it doesn't really matter whether we, we require the 10% or not. You just need to give. Well, the Scriptures tell us how to give, but they do not tell us how much to give. So to bind anything else is just as bad as the Judaizers who were trying to bind circumcision on how to be saved, right? We've already learned can't add to or take away. Does it make a difference how we offer our worship? Let me give you one more verse. 1 Corinthians 14, 40, Let all things be done decently and in order. If you guys want to know how that works, we've already looked at the primary aspects, but guys, the Scriptures give us 
the only way to worship. Let's look at one more point. It won't take me very long. Does it make a difference how one lives as a Christian? Go on over to Galatians chapter 5. Sad to me to think that many people think they can just do whatever they want or live however they want as long as they believe or have faith. And they would say, you know, it, it doesn't really matter. Galatians 5.19, I'm going to read down to verse 25. I know I've given you a lot of passages, but I think they were necessary as we kind of work through this. I think we do teach, uh, teach very clearly and thoroughly, so hopefully no, there's no confusion. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife. Sed he's, he's listing them all here, isn't he? Seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings. There's a few more he didn't, read, he didn't uh, cite, so he says this. And such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Now, it's interesting. He gives us all the negative attributes of the things we ought not to be doing, and then he gives the positive attributes of the things we ought to be doing. Does it sound like it makes a difference? Clearly it does. And some would even look at those and say, I know that these sins are bad or they're not good, but... We also have the grace of God, and the grace of God will cover that. We'll listen to Romans 6, 1 and 2, because some would say, some would refer to the grace of God, and they would take it to something that is not uh, read about in our scriptures. Notice Romans 6, 1 and 2. Paul tells the church in Rome, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Let me pause for a minute. I've told you, I've listened to a Baptist minister who said, I could rape people on the way home, rob a bank, murder, and guys, I'm still going to heaven because of the grace of God. Paul says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid! How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Now, why would he say that? Well, let's notice what the Hebrews writer teaches in Hebrews 10, verse 26. For if we... Sin willfully, that word if you look it up simply means voluntarily or willingly. Let me say this, guys, and I'll just I'll use myself. I can't really think of any sins right off the top of my head that I would be involved in or have done in the past that weren't by my own choosing, by my own free will. It's usually because I wanted to do it or because I didn't think things through and I willingly did it, right? For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth talking about those who have heard the gospel, talking about Christians here in context, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. We could spend a lot more time on this, but here's the point simply. We are accountable, and for Christians, we would need to certainly repent of these types of things. But here's what the religious world has done when they begin to talk about the grace of God. They have begun to teach things, uh, primarily we find in Calvinism, like once saved, always saved, which has led a lot of people to think that they can live however they want, do whatever they want, even worship however they want, and God's grace is going to cover all the sin in that air. Listen to Galatians 5.4. Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law. Now in context, he's talking about the law of Moses. And he says this, ye are fallen from grace. There's a point at which Christians can fall from grace. And guys, if you're not even a Christian, you never could have received that grace in the first place. Now, I know that that comes across as harsh, 
But let me ask one last question as I'm going to go over to 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 6. You guys know the passage. Why is all of this so important? I mean, why does it even make a difference? The reason is, is because our understanding of the gospel and our actions make a difference to our final destination. Now, again, we're reminded that the only way to be righteous is based on the Word of God, uh, according to our living and our worshiping. And so, again, does it make a difference? Well, when we look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6-10, through 10, we see that it does. Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you, and to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them, notice this, that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power, when He shall come to be glorified in His saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Does it make a difference? It certainly does. It makes a difference whether we have been saved right. It makes a difference whether we are worshiping right. It makes a difference if we are living right. Here's the real question. If you're here today and you've just been taught this, does it make enough difference for you to obey the gospel? And if you're already a Christian, does this make enough difference for you to live faithful as a Christian? As I draw this to a close, my concern would be for anybody here or anybody watching this online, uh, that you know how to become a Christian. It's not very complicated. We've already looked at it. We find in every conversion account they were taught the gospel. That's how faith comes, Romans 10, 17. They believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and that He was the Messiah. You go to Hebrews eleven six or John eight twenty four. If you don't believe that, you're going to die in your sins. They understood what sin was and the consequence, and they knew they needed to repent of it, Acts 17, 30. They need to confess Christ, Romans 10, 10. And you need to be immersed in water for the remission of sins, Mark 16, 16, also Acts 2, verse 38. When you do that, you'll be added to the church. If you are here and you're a Christian, does the Scripture make a difference in your life? Does it, does it matter? We've seen very clearly it does. It matters what we believe. It matters how we behave. It matters how we worship. If you've not been doing those things according to the Scripture, I would urge you to go back and restudy that uh, repent of those things, correct it, and continue to be righteous. If there's a way we can help you in any way as we draw this to a close, you could simply come forward as we're led in a song of invitation.